podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Alderson. I got, once again, Nick Hanna in the room. Nick, what's up? Hey, how we doing, man? Good, good. So we got the uh, we got some recurring guests today. We have uh, Mike Michael Hellmeyer and Matt Peterson. These guys are from Fish Bio. You probably remember them from the uh, How a Trout Becomes a Steelhead podcast that we did a while back. Uh, they're back in the room. We got a uh, we got a a request from one of our listeners, and we do like requests. So if you guys have requests, uh, leave us. You know, jump on our Facebook page. Shoot us a message on Instagram. I think that's how we got this request. Or email or email fish at no, fish on fish on at barbless. Yep, yep. yep. Um, so this particular episode uh, is a request: uh, coastal cutthroat trout, right? Sea run cutties. Co- coastal cutthroat. <laughs> no. trout. Not all. Not all coastal cutthroat are going to be sea run cutthroat. Right. But some of them will be. Here we go. <laughs> so I think part one should, if you haven't listened to the uh, How a Trout be- Becomes a Steelhead, you should probably listen to that one because I, I, there's probably some stuff that you can uh, apply to this one, I'm assuming. Or maybe not. Definitely a lot of overlap between the two yeah. species, between coastal cutthroat and steelhead. So yeah, they they share the same environment. So Yeah, but we, before, we, before we dive into that particular piece of this, this uh, episode – uh, I wanted to kind of just briefly talk about what what was what you guys did up on uh, Big Chico Creek when we uh, we went up there and took some photos of you guys doing a, a fish survey. Uh, so what was the what was the purpose up there? Um, so we did a fish survey for the third time now um, on the Big Chico Creek Ecological Reserve, and the purpose of it really was it started out as a kind of a, our local pet project um, in 2013 um, when we shortly after we off after fish bio opened an office in, in Chico and you know we came to realize that we don't really know much about our local creek um, so we set out to do a, a summer population survey working with Chico State um, and the reserve staff to just get a, a preliminary idea of what the what the fish community and the fish abundance looks like on the reserve because no work had been done um, when it comes to fish populations on Big Chico Creek for a few decades now, and we did it in in 2013 and we were and and continued to be limited if you want to call it that um, to non-invasive surveys so we just count fish by by snorkeling and visual observation rather than actually capturing handling them potentially harming them um do you know there's all sorts of um potential i guess concerns regarding that higher water temperature during summer all those fish could potentially be steelhead so again um mm. yeah 
if you is if that you, tough snorkeling and trying to count fish well it looked like it was <laughs> it looked like a lot of work it's a lot of work it's strenuous work for sure is it difficult to count fish i guess and that depends on turbidity and all it that. depends on turbidity but that's that's one of the reasons we chose that type of survey that's something that works really well in um in our local climate, so California, Oregon, that coastal climate with mm. the dry summer. So in late mm -hmm. summer, mm -hmm. typically in the streams, you'll have low and clear flows. So visual observation works pretty well as long as fish densities aren't too high. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a mm. few hundred fish in a given habitat unit, it's impossible to count accurately. Um, but if fish densities are low and you're seeing anywhere from, you know, zero to a dozen or so fish um, per, per habitat unit that you snorkel, it works really well. Habitat unit meaning like whole? Yep, like a hole, like a pool or yeah. a run or a riffle. So the whole the whole survey was preceded by um, the habitat mapping of the entire creek within the reserve. So we categorized everything into run, riffle, pool, and, and cascades. Um, and cascades are not really snorkelable, so they're usually very steep riffles where you have a lot of a lot of bubbles in the water, very poor visibility. Mm -hmm. Obviously, for right. a visual survey, you need good good visibility. So those are in excluded. Um, but within riffles, runs, and pools, uh, we selected an, a number of units, or for that matter, to be accurate, we selected a start, a random, a random start number, and then we sampled or snorkeled every fifth unit go in a, going in an upstream direction. And that kind of ensures that we cover any type of variation that might be due to a gradient within that stream. So in a stream, you can imagine downstream, higher temperature, upstream, lower temperature, and a bunch of other things. And you could expect fish density and fish abundance to vary along that gradient. So to capture that whole gradient, we did this systematic sampling approach where we pick a random start and then snorkel every fifth unit. So we pretty much snorkeled 20% of the creek within um, within the ecological reserve. And then you guys make multiple passes over the same unit and right. We do. Yeah. What's the, what's the reason for that? So the reason for that, that's a, a way to calibrate your Standard single deviation, pass. Basically pretty much. It's a way to calibrate your single pass count. So the vast majority of units, you only snorkel once and count the fish that you see, but chances are you're not able to see every single fish within a unit within one snorkel pass and so there's a, a methodology it's called a, a method of bounded counts where you select randomly a few units within each habitat type so run riffle pool that you do um, multiple snorkel counts so four passes in in our case and ultimately it results in an adjustment factor so you take the the difference between the highest count of those four passes at the second highest count and add that difference to the highest count and that's actually your your estimate of abundance in that unit hmm. and then does that does that um offset then apply to the rest of the units that you that you survey is that the rationale exactly so okay. just just as a very simple example in your highest count if you count 12 fish and your second highest count you count 10 the difference between the two is two you add that to the um to the 12 so you're count or your estimate would actually be 14 and then that ratio 14 to 12 so a little over 1 1.1 1. 1 something that you add to or you you multiply your single pass counts with and then sum them all up and come yeah, up what's overall. interesting i would think that when you made your second pass you would spook fish out of that unit that just doesn't happen though it usually doesn't happen 
to to the extent that it causes a concern usually you you also let the unit rest in between and the whole point of the snorkel surveys is you do it as a in in a non-invasive fashion as possible right mm -hmm. you don't want to disturb the fish you don't want to chase them around if you're chasing fish you can't count them accurately and in theory you do one pass you get your count you let the unit rest for 10 15 minutes and then you go do your second count <laughs> and and when you guys do the pass you're just so our listeners know they're basically submerged up to their ears with a snorkel and everything else is running over your body so you're they're like no no fins on but you know they're grabbing rocks and kind of pulling kind of almost like an army man crawl through a lot of it right it's an upstream crawl whenever yeah. the water's shallow from time yeah. to time you get to swim when you're surveying deeper pools but usually it's a it's a belly crawl through yeah. the riffles and the runs what's interesting if you're saying they're not moving that much you know just as an angler and you're approaching the water and you know you, you spook a fish the odds are it'll come back it sounds like if you if you sit you sit tight you know if you spook it out of its holding area it may come back is that can we apply that kind of what you're saying to that to an angling kind of scenario i think you could i think what you can apply to it is if you spook a fish the fish is not going to go very far chances are it's not going to go outside of that habitat unit that it's in if you approach a pool and you see a big fish and it retreats to deeper water as you walk up chances are it's not going to leave the pool um whether it comes back to the exact spot it was before um that's a different question it might take a while so with the creek being low and warm did you find a lot less fish and tail outs and more in deep pools and right at the head of the runs typically fish were where you'd expect them to be um with the highest concentrations in in runs and kind of at the head of pools where, where, where runs a riffle comes in yeah where, where, where there's high. a little bit of current and where oxygen is high exactly i um when i i went on this tuna trip I keep bringing the tuna trip up but um we one of the guys that that came with us uh he's he owns neutralon and part of what he also does he's i guess he's a botanist i guess how he got his start but um he also does pond management like the California park ponds that's they he takes care of that so they take uh, dissolved oxygen readings like all the time and he's talking about that and how important that is do you guys like do do measurements at all and if so like what are you using and is it important yeah we definitely um, do dissolved oxygen measurements um, that wasn't a part of the big Chico Creek surveys um, but on a, a lot of our other surveys we do that and yes it's very important for fish um, generally you know, just to give you a ballpark, um, mm -hmm. DO, like the concentration per, what is it? Parts Mill per, milligrams per liter yeah, or parts per million. Per yeah, that's why I got this guy next to me. Now, basically you want that to be above six for all your salmonid species and it can get down to five, um, for other species. Certain species can, can tolerate like way low, like yeah. two and three, like carp, catfish. And bass, catfish. Mm -hmm. Um, in general, I would bet that the dissolved oxygen was fairly high in Big Chico Creek. It's it's pretty typical to be you know eight, nine, ten. Yeah, know, we're kind gonna of that range. we're gonna we just booked we just booked Jeff actually. He, we're gonna do an episode where we just talk about Stillwater Pond Management and all the science behind oh, okay. it. It's actually really fascinating. So I think it'll be a good episode. But um, he yeah he was talking about the health of of streams in relation to the their do. Uh, I guess factor it was it was a really interesting discussion. Yeah. So we're, we'll bring it up in the, the in next a, one. In a place like Big Chico or you know any of the creeks around here in Northern California, dissolved oxygen where there's 
any type of like turbulent flow is usually not an issue. It'll pretty much be near saturation at all times, just because it's continuously aerated. And there is a distinction between saturation and um, and oxygen content or concentration. Mm. So if water is really cold, it can hold much, much more oxygen sense, yeah. than when it's warm. So when it's cold, it may hold, you know, nine, 10 milligrams per liter um, and be fully saturated. And as the water temperature gets warmer, it could be fully saturated or 100% saturated at, you know, five, six, seven milligrams per liter. Um, so saturation is usually not an issue. And wherever you find trout, where the temperature, the temperatures are suitable, um, yeah, you'll be you'll typically be near saturation. It's a different story um, on lakes where, you know, you have stagnant water, you don't have that have that continuous turnover and and air air water contact um, where where it can be enriched with oxygen and reoxygenate. So mm. it's a much it's a much bigger issue on on lakes and still waters in general. How many otters did you see in there? Zero. Good. Why? <laughs> Nick's got a theory that the otters are the bane of all of our creeks. No, not not all the bane. It's I feel like they've definitely had an impact on yeah. some of my this, fisheries. It, it might be it might be a little off talk off topic, but I'm heading up to Yellow Creek here next week. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be a really, you know, famous and maybe even pro very productive yeah. um kind of meadow spring creek fishery yep mm -hmm. and i heard that in years past the fishery has just i totally taken a dive i and fished it recently because and it of wasn't otters. good it wasn't good no and that was because of otters that's what i heard i don't yeah. know if it's true uh, i don't know about that there was a right. pretty significant degradation of the meadow yep. ecosystem up there because so, of the cattle yeah, i think pretty it, probably cattle and land use upstream mm -hmm. yeah yeah when i was there um all those those signs that there's you know the cattle encroaching on the river they were all there it was like low r really high banks all undercut banks and just kind of a lot of dry spots and and all the moisture was like literally right around the river there wasn't a bunch of bogs or anything i brought it up because there's an article you guys recently posted on the fish by website which if you're listening you guys got to go check it out there's a lot of cool information that these guys post um about a lot of different issues and waterways and species of fish it's it's pretty cool i i learn mm -hmm. i learn a lot every time i get on there so check it out what is it fishbio.com yeah cool. go check it out it's pretty cool so do we want to talk about coast, coastal cutthroat trout since i promised we would sure okay. i think that's why we came yeah so what do you guys know about them <laughs> you know a fair amount uh i uh i learned a lot about them over at humboldt state where i went to um uh, undergraduate and graduate school and then uh my time angling for them uh oh so you've targeted them too i have yeah oh, cool. i have um and kind of have a neat experience um i i fished for them um studied them very rarely in school um but some of my best uh, experience with them is actually from um fisheries work um so i was able to i was a fisheries technician for a few years in in humboldt county del norte county and uh got to snorkel with them um, got to trap them and, and rotary screw traps and, and out migrant traps, um, and then electrofish for them. And you find them everywhere in a lot of different streams out there. And it's, it's really neat to see they go from, you know, you can catch them in the estuary all the way up to headwaters where the, you know, some of the pools would, would be half the size of this table. 
and you wouldn't expect a fish to be in there, but hmm. they're there. Yeah. I, I very isolated populations, and I just now it makes me think like, how do those things make it up there? Yeah, they. What I was in prepping for this episode, I'd read that you know they're they're anadromous sometimes, but they don't necessarily need to be. It's kind of like a steelhead. It sounds very much like the steelhead situation. Um, they also don't go far from their natal stream. Like they don't go way out in the ocean. They typically will stay within either around the estuary, but in the salt, but, but in within like a hundred mile range of, of their natal stream. Is that, is that all right? Accurate stuff. I don't have any firsthand experience with, you know, ocean migration of sea run cutthroat. Um, from what I recall from the literature and, and, and hearing is that, Yes, if they do go to the ocean, and, and like you said, they don't have to. It's kind of like the, the rainbow trout steelhead mm-hmm. deal, um, that some some of them or a part of the population can go to the ocean. And when they do, or the ones that do, typically stay close to the coast and kind of remain in that, that freshwater plume of whichever river they're coming from, and they don't migrate very far. And when they, when they do decide to go out in the ocean, do they have, have some, sort of like the same sort of physiological changes that, say, a trout does when it becomes a steelhead? Yeah, I, yes, they do. Um, okay. I've seen that, seen that um, from some of the downstream migrant trapping that we used to do. Um, they'll, they'll become very silver, silvery, usually like the more resident forms or um, a lot of spots, a lot of Col- spots, very colored up. Yeah. Um, definitely a strong um, slash underneath the, the gill plates. Right. And uh, when, when during the spring and of the ones that actually go out to the ocean, they'll silver up quite a bit. They'll, they'll get very uh, muted in their coloration. So you won't get a lot of those spots and you'll get like they almost turn like a ghostish kind of white ish. That's just mm. kind of what I observe. But they just have a really distinct slash under the, yeah, the and gill plate. Yeah, they typ- typically do. Yeah, they not all of them. Not all the time. Always no, they that don't. brings up a whole nother yes. <laughs> issue with so them. They, they, cutthroat trout actually do hybridize with rainbow trout. And a lot of the work, well, in California. When you say hybridize, they're, hybridize. they're mating. Cut bows. They're mating. Yeah, yeah. Kind, of, kind of cut bows. Yep, that's what you could call them. Um, they, yeah, they, they mate with each other. They can interbreed. And when they do, and they do fairly frequently, and when they do, they're pretty much impossible to identify, to identify as a hybrid or either one of the, the two species. And some work has been done um, mostly at Humboldt State that shows, you know, if field identification, especially of juvenile fish, um, is very, very difficult. And even trained people are not, very consistent or ha- don't have a high accuracy identifying juvenile fish to cutthroat or steelhead or a hybrid. Um, I think they were right in that, that one study that I recall, it was a, I think it was a graduate thesis from the nineties. Um, they got him right about 30% of the time. And mind you, those are like trained people and fisheries biologists. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very difficult. If you have adults, um, on the other hand, an adult cutthroat trout is is fairly distinct and, and very, very obvious. How come they don't get as big as steelhead? Yeah, I was going to ask how big they got. Because you average size, you see them around 18, maybe 18 inches, That's 16. That's a big one. That's a really big yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. More like 12 to 14 would okay. be a typical adult fish. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess it'd be something to do with it. They don't spend as much time um, out in the ocean as right. steelhead do. Right. Um, you know, just your your what you said before that they don't travel too far would indicate to me that 
they're not out there that long. They're not taking advantage yeah. of the ocean as much as steelhead do. You never caught any over 20 inches up there? <laughs> the biggest, uh, I've caught a couple decent ones up yeah. in Oregon before mm-hmm. uh, while fishing for steelhead, but um, those were 16, 17 inches, which I took. That was that was fun. The, I think the on best, dries. best yeah. Yeah, oh, that's on cool. dries, yeah. that's cool. Because I know I the best ask. best fly, I think, is just a, a minnow pattern, right? If you want to catch the crap out of a, a sea run or, sorry, coastal cutthroat, um, just a little mini fry pattern or something like that, right, would be yep. deadly. Small streamers will do yep. the trick. Why is why is that? Just they're, how, they're just used to eating all the baby steelhead and salmon coming down. Yeah, yep. they eat a lot. They eat a lot. Probably a lot of, of juvenile salmon. It's in th- to just backtrack just a little bit to um, the size question earlier, why don't they get as big as, as steelhead? I think in part it has to do with that cutthroat kind of occupy their own own little niche in that ecosystem. Right. And that's typically much smaller streams than where you'd find steelhead. Right. So you'd find them in, in smaller watersheds and, you know, first and second order streams. Like Matt mentioned, there's, you know, pools that are, yeah, the size of a – have to suck a, a few square feet in size and you'll have cutthroat in mm-hmm. them. So you'd never find a steelhead mm-hmm. um, in, in that type of water. Right. When, and, sorry, go ahead. You're right in the middle of something. <laughs> you brought, you, you brought, you made, you said a word that I want to get some, a definition on. Go for it. You said first and second order streams. I know what they are, um, but can you describe them for our listeners? Cause it's definitely a bio, biology term talks about the, topology of a river and all the uh, rivers flowing into it. So uh, stream order is um, derived from how many different sources, I guess, of of flowing water come together. So as a, as a simple example, if you have a, a spring coming out of the ground with no other tributary flowing into it, that's a first order stream. doesn't have any tributaries. As soon as one tributary flows into it, that's also a first order stream it becomes a second order stream to become a third order stream. You have to have an other, an, a second, second order stream converge with that one and so on. So if you have a, a fifth order stream and a first order stream flows in, it still remains mm-hmm. a fifth order stream. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the largest streams in the world, like the, you know, Amazon is like a 12th order stream. So it doesn't the scale, the scale doesn't go very high. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the 12th could be 13 Hmm. or 14, but it's not very high. What were you, what you were saying though, about the habitat and comparison with the size makes total sense. You you look at like the Smith river up, up in Northern California in winter time, springtime flowing with lots of water, right? You get Mm -hmm. all those big steelhead coming in, doing their thing and they get back out and then the river, you know, comes down throughout the summertime. There's still the river, like the Smith has some flow, you know, good amount of flow, but where you find a lot of cutthroats now, right? And the yeah. kind of summer. I mean, it just is that is, is that kind so of they what come in when this water's a little more skinny than normal. Is that? I just think you I'm can find you find them, right? They're, yeah, they they're, can. They're they there. can get places where larger fish can't go. Right. Like they they can they live in places where no salmon could ever go, right. and probably no you know no larger steelhead could ever go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you if you ever spending time on the north coast, and I kind of have the the same or similar history, you know, to Matt, I went to Humboldt State and lived in Humboldt for. Yeah, over a, over a decade, and I actually had my fly fishing start with cutthroat trout. That was my, <laughs> oh, my cool. first species. So for a year or two, that's pretty much all I fished for because there's yeah, there wasn't much else other than cutthroat and steelhead. They'll readily take dries though, huh? Um, I never really fished for them with dries. I usually just fish streamers. That was um, up on the Umqua. Uh, okay, so yeah, during the stonefly hatch. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, was I, I was going to say something about that. Uh, Umqua? No, I guess it had to do with um, the cutthroats. Oh, yeah. I was on a train of thought and kind of jumped off it there for a second. Well, that was me. But I, I did that. Um, no, if you, you know, if you, if you ever spend a lot of time kind of up on the North Coast and up in Humboldt, you'll... And if you start looking at the the really really small creeks and rivers, such as the Little River, would be one of them. It's mm-hmm. actually a really good cutthroat stream. Um, that's the only one I'm going to give away, though. <laughs> um, but if you've if you've ever been up to Fern Canyon, for example, um, kind of a yeah local attraction with a super super tiny creek flowing through it, and you look under every undercut bank in every deeper in every deeper hole. There are cutthroat trout, and that the the creek is a trickle. You know, uh, yeah. There's no mm. way um, larger fish could move in there, and you, yet you find cutthroat trout. You know, but I'm pushing ten inches or so in there. Um, they obviously get bigger to you know just over twenty inches, twenty two, twenty three, maybe. I think is probably the larger hmm. the larger ones that I've heard reported of. Um, but yeah. Above twenty inches is is very. You rare. could probably find those fish in like Big Lagoon, right? Big Lagoon is one of the places. Yep, and the creeks that flow in uh, the creek that flows into it. Yeah, um, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good place to find them. I read they're in the eel too. Is that true? I think so. I think it's it's always mentioned as the southern extent of their range. I've never seen them in the eel. That doesn't mean that they're not there. Um, they probably are. I've, I don't think anyone targets them in that watershed. And in all honesty, I. I know that watershed fairly well and i would have to think for a while about where to go look for them Hmm. um but i'm sure they've been documented there before i feel like cutthroats are like nature's um way of keeping a a a bead on the steelhead and salmon right it's almost i think of it as like a brook trout or like a a a pikeman not a pikeman from a predation i can't put it down that (laughs) right Hmm. right would that does that make any sense at all or or no? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Yeah. <laughs> they are they are though much more um piscivorous or fish Con- eaters, right. much more so mm-hmm. than than other species of, of the same size, or much more so than, than rainbows at the same size. And you can that's reflected in their morphology. So one of the one of the things that you know we're we're trained to and taught in our like first fish identification classes when we when we started out as as fisheries people is the way you can tell them apart for sure the the rainbow trout or the steelhead and the the cutthroat is that cutthroat will actually have tongue on their teeth and on their like upper palate will have what teeth um, teeth on their tongue did I say it the other way you around? said tongue <laughs> on their teeth yeah, yeah. it's like what's teeth? tongue some yeah. no, no, no. sort of new no, no, no. mineral on teeth so, so te- teeth on the roof of their mouth and on their tongue um, and, and rainbows or steelhead don't have that just so, kind of a bigger mouth too yeah they okay. do trying to definitely a notice a bigger head on yeah. those things well okay so if you're based on when you guys you know told us last time about um how a trout becomes a steelhead usually if a trout decides to go out to the ocean there's environmental factors present in the current system that push it out uh maybe the water temp goes up or there's no there's a, the food for some reason just drops off so they they book out to the ocean so if if these these sea run no coastal cut cutthroat trout um if they're in these really skinny watersheds like you're saying the fern the fern watershed why did they decide to stay there when they could just book downstream and go out to the ocean and have ample everything 
I'm not sure I can answer that. I think they're probably generally like their opportunities are less to get out. Um, some of those small streams might not connect out to the main river or okay. the ocean very often. Um, I'm thinking of Fern Canyon. I don't yeah. Know, it might, okay. yeah. It might or, not or the lagoons often at all. Right. Or, yeah. or the lagoons, they're not open to the ocean or <clears throat> all the time. And, and when they open, they do so infrequently and for short periods of time. Just little windows. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how it applies to, to bigger watersheds like to Smith, you know, that's, that's open or, or to Klamath that, well, it's, it's not always open, but right. the vast majority of time <laughs> right. it's open. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why, why some, they, they don't go even though they could. Um, yeah. Huh. I don't but when they do decide knows. to go, it's just maybe they've got, they've got a channel open to, to the ocean and they just, and the timing's right. And they just book. I bet Striper crush those cuddies. <laughs> I don't get know an, if there's any a, stripers there. Get a cutthroat uh, S waiver and go out to place, Helen City. The only place out. they really overlap is up up on the Umpqua River. More up north. Yeah, yeah. In Winchester Bay. I think that's the only place they'd really so, overlap in their distribution. So, so you would go you would like take all your stuff, go out and target those those fish specifically then? Um or were you not going after a steelhead? Um they're definitely bycatch when you're fishing for steelhead. So you'll okay. get you'll get smaller ones, you know, eating egg patterns, okay. um, you know, eating streamers, stuff like that. Um but what happens on the north coast a lot, and I was thinking about this today, is like steelhead season's pretty short in all reality, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of time in between. So that's where a cutthroat comes in. So it's like going to the golf range and hitting practice balls. A little bit, yeah. Because yeah. it's they're, your they're, they're fun though. I mean, they're fun fish. Oh, they're Some great. Of the places that you know you get to fish for them in. Yeah, beautiful. So is that is that like a summer thing? Is that what you, when you target them summertime? I usually didn't. No, um, I, that that's when I went. But yeah, yeah, no, I usually I usually targeted them in, in winter and spring. Is usually when I when I targeted them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, be it, be it on the lagoon or or on the the various smaller north coast rivers. Um, yeah, for some reason May June always seemed to be peak. Um, I'm not sure not sure why. I mean, it's post spawn they do spawn in winter. Mm-hmm. You know, sometime February, March, mm-hmm. April, um, and that seemed to be the best time to catch them. When when you guys target them in the lagoon, how do you fish a lagoon? Is so it similar just, to still water? Do, so you, just, do you have like float tube, or do you do it off the bank, or do you get a boat? My buddy, he lived in Humboldt and went to, it was a college there. And he, when the rivers would blow out, that's where he would go, right? Yeah. He would would go there because it was the only clean water. And then like the tides too probably have a huge, huge uh, impact on what you're doing and 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 tactics and all that. He used lake lines and seal boogers or woolly boogers and he'd catch, but they, he'd target steelhead too that would, would that would swim in there. It's it's pretty nice. So is that how you guys would, would do it with lake lines and woolly boogers or seal boogers and stuff like that? Yeah. If you if you have a boat available, it's a huge advantage, right. obviously. Because um, the big lagoon so is much, big. It's big. Is it <laughs> deep? Do they get pretty deep or no? You know, I'm, t- I'm trying to remember. Not, I, I used to know. It's like not super 10 deep. to 20 feet. 10 no, to 20. It's more, I think it's more than that. You think so? It's probably it's, more, more to four, closer to 40, but I'd have okay. to Okay, well, you can do a full sink and be fine. Yeah, but they the fish wouldn't be that deep. Usually, no. like into the deep, you'd have cruising oxygen 20 in the top 15 feet, feet of water or so and below that. You, okay. Yeah, there wouldn't be any fish. Interesting. So, so you fa- you basically just fish it like a stillwater, and yep. then but the tides are going to have an impact on what you're doing and how you access everything. And yes and no. 
um, for if the most not a land block. Well, for the most part, they're they're isolated from the ocean, okay. um, unless they're breached. Um, so if they're breached, usually you'll have like rapid water fluctuation, like mm-hmm. where the water just drops sometimes, and there's a huge like basically river going out to the ocean, which is or you get a surge. Pretty neat to say. Pretty neat to see. I never saw much like tidal fluctuation. Not when it's not when it's closed. No, yeah. um, and it's rare that it breaks open. Um, I think on Big Lagoon it happens on average like every other year or so. Yeah, um, and mm-hmm. then it stays open for a few weeks. And and when it does happen, it's kind of very intriguing about those lagoon environments. They're very very dynamic systems. You yeah, know, you'd have you'd have it closed off from the ocean by the sandbar. And it has a few tributaries. There's water running into it, and right. it keeps filling up, and it keeps filling up. The water gets fresher and fresher, and you have a sal- you know you still have a salinity in there, mm-hmm. but you know one two parts per thousand compared to you know thirty three thirty four in the actual ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it keeps filling up, keeps filling up, and usually takes a big a big winter storm to wash some big waves over that sandbar, kind of erode it a little bit, and then it busts open, and then within twelve hours of water level will drop by you know 10 15 feet wow and mm. yeah it's over after that it usually the lagoons stay open you know for a period of several days up to several weeks and while it's open you'll definitely get some tidal fluctuation in there and it gets really salty because you'll have ocean water coming in and it gets you know you get salinities in and the there's 20s. biology transporting both ways and it probably is just like a completely different ecosystem when it when it all goes back together oh, i bet very steel, much so. steel hit hydroplaning up in there hydroplaning if you ever get a chance to fish big lagoon Damn, right after just, it opens it the coastal thing is just like timing 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 and then that's even another window within a window you know windows within windows definitely i've never fished it i've always wanted to i, guess. I dude we should definitely try it i bet there's 20 inch 2019 cut bows in there or cut throat in there i'm sure you know i would just like to be drug around the lake by a 30 inch um steelhead i think that'd be pretty cool there's a good chance they're in there are they targeted much in in oregon and washington i I mean again we just don't talk about it much in i guess i don't really know i can't can't speak to that i know they're targeted they're not targeted frequently and often in California, it's yeah. usually you know it's fairly unusual for people to go and fish fish for cutthroat. I'm not sure why. I think they're a lovely species. We caught a lot of them in uh, the middle fork <laughs> of the salmon. You know, the, I mean, there was a ton of them in there. Yeah. There was cut bows and cutthroat, but, tons, tons, um, all dry on dries. What are those? Those are snake river or yeah, different different subspecies, right, Michael? Yeah. Of those. Yeah, I don't think are they coastal cutthroat. I I can't speak to that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. They would hit a gum wrapper though. I think if you threw it on the water, hit everything. Um, what's it? Gonna, oh my kiss! That's oh like. my kiss! Oh my kiss! Well, that sounds sciencey. <laughs> we were talking in a in a previous episode about um, the DNA of trout above a dam. Yep. And uh, what's, rec- your, what's your theory? Well, rec- share, share your theory. Recent- I like the theory. Recently, the there was a study done about the the steelhead being caught down in the San Francisco Bay, and whether or not hatcheries are having an influence on their DNA and and ver- a coastal steelhead versus you know a hatchery steelhead and how the DNA is being affected with hatchery programs, but also what the um, natural population of trout 
in those rivers is also how that plays into the genetics or DNA of these, these fish. And they're finding the, the study that was, it was finding that, um, most of the fish that they're catching down there are of that coastal steelhead strain, even with all of the steelhead that the hatcheries are, are putting into our, you know, into the rivers. Um, you guys thought, you know, anything <laughs> like talking out of my ass here. <laughs> do you, do you I mean, I think I know which, which study you're talking about. I think generally, yeah, that that's what it was kind of pointing to. Uh, just kind of, I, I always think that, you know, it's pretty tough to live, you know, if you're a steelhead, it's pretty tough to live on the coast and well, you, think you about, have to be, you yeah. have to be kind of tough and you have to be like in shape and you know, you got to be that, fit basically. That was and the, those hatchery, those hatchery fish just aren't like, just aren't suited for that environment. So that I mean, just I like generally, it. I think I like it, you know, especially taking a hatchery fish from the central Valley potentially and right. trying to, you know, this chance of that, of that fish passing on his genes on the coast would be pretty uh, slim just in, just in general. They're not suited for that environment. Right. right. It talked about what, you know, the San Francisco Bay was like in 1850 versus two, 2018. Right. And just all the adaptation that some of these fish would have to go through to survive and, you know, toxic water, or, you know, canals or whatever it may be um, for the struggle for them to get back up. But it was just interesting because it went on to say even more about the genetics of the fish above dams. And that those, the DNA there, and it basically reiterated what we were talking about is finding that pure strain, that DNA of, of those coastal fish within those trout, right. That are there. I don't know. I just thought it was, it was well, kind of like there, you know, if you think about, um, you know, when, when the ice age happened and it, it glacially locked in certain species where it just kind of put them in a time capsule. Right. And if you think about a dam going up as kind of like a glacial event that locks, you know, there's a physical barrier and it kind of locks that, that genome into that watershed. And there's no transportation of uh, DNA between what could cross pollinate with it or whatever. It's kind of the same concept in a way. You yeah. Know, I think they were about talking out of your ass. There <laughs> were, there were, uh, from what I recall, there and I didn't refresh my memory by by reading this before coming. But from what I recall, there was a couple takeaways from from that paper. One was that, in general, like the smaller San Francisco Bay or Bay Area tributaries had a fairly pure ancestral, like you know, composition when it comes to, when it comes to the genetic makeup. So very little hatchery hatchery influence. Like you I said. gotcha, yep. Um, and and I think that's probably largely due to a lack of large scale stocking effort in these smaller creeks. You know, they're, they're, right. they're small streams. They're not going to get right. the type of production, steelhead production, hatchery production, like the feather river mm -hmm. or the American or anything mm -hmm. like that. You know, they probably, probably every major and medium and probably minor watershed in California has been stocked with something at some point. Right. Um, but those efforts were probably fairly limited in these smaller tributaries so that it didn't get the, the genetic signature of the ancestral steelhead didn't get washed out to the extent mm -hmm. um, it happened in, in other watersheds. That was one. And then the other one was that in, in some of these remnant populations that got isolated by dam construction, for example, um, that, the, the kind of genetic signature of steelhead still e exists and not only the genetic signature, but also kind of the, um, 
the behavioral adaptations where steelhead would you know re rear and, and reproduce in streams kind of just kind of just like every trout but rather than go into the ocean which they can't do because there was a there was a dam they would go to the reservoir and right. basically act like giant lake trout mm -hmm. so the the mm -hmm. lake was their ocean mm -hmm. um so they wouldn't stay in the stream they would go downstream um and migrate to the lake that's as far as they could go and use that big body that still water body um as their ocean to grow big and find you know the more abundant food resources forage fish etc and then do grow to a larger size than their you know resident counterparts or even siblings right? yeah i i mean firsthand experience i've caught la lake run fish up in a trip during certain times of the year and they're way bigger than the residents they're thicker they look more like coastal run steelhead a lot you know they're very similar looking fish so um it, it it made me think a lot too about the hatcheries and what we've spoken to about Mike in the past about um, whether or not they that we need them or not, right? Um, and I saw <laughs> I saw the the aftermath of this more more present than any time I've ever fished the Sacramento River um, this year. You know, last year we didn't see any salmon coming up because of the trucking of those smolts that the hatchery did down to the delta, right? And then all of a sudden, one year goes by, and we and there's more chrome, bright chrome salmon in the river than I than I can remember, right? I mean, everybody's catching; they're everywhere. Right it's now, been, yeah, it's been really good. It's been really good. Um, so it's just you know, it's funny. You think These about, two are both smiling. I know. So I want to know what they're smiling well, about. When you have water and you have hatcheries and you have good water management, you get fish, and so and any of those variables get lost somewhere. We don't have fish, right? It's just kind of scary to think about. And I, as much as I love the idea of no hatcheries existing and just having to just be wild and scenic, um, we kind of need them, don't we? Hatchery production, without a doubt, supports a large proportion of the commercial and recreational fishery. And if it wasn't for the hatchery, if you were to take the hatcheries away right now, um, there'd be a big dip in, in salmon populations, no doubt. Right. Um, what we don't know and, and where kind of the uncertainty is, is what would happen if you, you know, waited it out and gave, gave right. the populations a, a chance to recover right. based on, you know, those genes that, that make it in the wild. Right. Um, I was reading a quote and I, I'll have to look, I'll have to look it up, um, to, to give it to you verbatim, but it it basically said that you know hatcheries are the ultimate mechanism to propagate genes that are useless right cuz you try to reduce mortality to the extent possible you try to create the ideal environment and to make everything or yeah to the extent possible survive and if you contrast that with the natural environment where the weak get weeded out. Yeah. That's how it is. It basically and, just inverts natural selection. Exactly. You know, and it's make it selects for things that aren't good in a nat in a natural That would make it in the natural like, world. Exactly. Hey, you do good in a raceway and you can sit pellets off the off the top faster than the guys that are rubbing your shoulders. That therefore you're gonna, you know, maybe you'll get out of this hatchery alive and maybe maybe become a jack salmon and maybe just pass that shitty <laughs> thing on to some un unsuspecting female right is that basically it bluntly put yes yeah 
Well, you bring up an interesting point about Jack Salmon. There being higher counts of Jack Salmon than ever before in our history, you know, of, I guess having hatcheries. And I always thought, uh, to me, it, it seems like it's a, a natural, it's a way for if there are a, a drought situation for those fish to the small ones that they can get into places that normally they wouldn't be able to get and right reproduce. But the way I read that article, it was, it was just more of an influence of the hatcheries, um, causing the, the rise of jacks. So the, the jack life history is definitely a balancing mechanism that kind of, like you said, kind of spreads the, the risk of something, you know, devastating or dramatic right. happening to a particular year class. And yeah, if a few of them uh, come, okay. come back early, come back a year earlier, that year class can still have a, a reproductive contribution, right, to the overall, the overall mm-hmm. stock or the population. Um, and you're right, the, the proportion of jacks that you now see in the population that's, that's returning, um, is higher than, than it has been in years past or to, to the extent that we know. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, a number of reasons and a few ramifications. Um, among the reason it, it kind of goes back to the, to at least partially to the hatchery production is so there's there's some science out there that shows or and indicates that the larger a fish is when it goes out to the ocean in case of a chinook salmon um the higher the likelihood it'll come back earlier at a young age really and that's interesting i would think it'd be the other way around yeah you think it's it seems counterintuitive and if you think what what a hatchery operation does is they they try to optimize the environment right and try to make as many big fish as fast as they can that's that's typically the the goal of a production hatchery so hatchery fish are usually larger at a given age and at release than their wild counterparts and oftentimes because they are larger at release and when they when they do go to the ocean a larger proportion of them um will come back early as jacks as jack okay that makes sense and one of the potential ramifications and one of the the real yeah implications for management on that is is that the the management agencies often uses the number of jacks as a forecasting mechanism for the following year, for the following ocean season. So, and if the fraction was constant, you know, if we knew, oh, 10% of the population is jacks every year, you could see, oh, this year we have a lot of jacks, which means the population at large is, must be very abundant too. Mm -hmm. Um, But the proportion of jacks is not constant. It fluctuates from year to year, and it continuously goes, goes up. up. And it's largely based on how the management of that class of fish was re- released from a size perspective, right? Well, there's there's that. And the, also, like, it's coupled with the survival out in the ocean that first mm-hmm. year. So if you get – if you're releasing more jacks from the hatchery, and then they go on to can, they go on to survive well in the ocean that first year, and I guess the second summer, um, then you'll tend to – you know, if they survive disproportionately from their older, the older fish that are going to return that same year, then yeah, you could, that's where you get in the issue of kind of increasing that proportion. Mm. Again, reading that article on the fish, by just so much great information, but that's exactly what it talked about is that the um, counts of jacks have gone up significantly. And then since 2003, they've inaccurately projected what the returns are going to be of salmon based on based on those numbers yeah the forecast the, the forecast for- mechanism yep. has stayed the same right that the, the right. forecast algorithm has stayed the same 
And yeah, if you see see a lot of jacks and assume that the jacks are a small proportion of the population at large, and so you say, oh, there's a lot of salmon in the ocean. Next year, we're gonna, you know, commercial fishery, recreational fishery is gonna right. be wide open. Right. Um, but then it turns out, oh, well, the proportion of jacks was really large, and there aren't really that many fish in the ocean. You the, you run a serious risk of over harvesting. Mm-hmm. Um, then poor returns, and you know, the wheel keeps on spinning. Poor returns, fewer offspring, and so on. Wow. Um, Super interesting. So hatcheries are going to continue to receive. Kind of a necessary evil if we've got man-made fish fish passage problems, right? Probably. I mean, they 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 certainly. Yeah, I don't I don't want to bash hatcheries. I worked in you know I worked in the hatchery (laughs) environment myself before. There's there's certain things that hatcheries are very good at. Right. Um, Do they? Produce a lot of fish, no doubt. Do they produce more fish than an intact environment could? Probably not. Do mm. they produce the vast majority of salmon that are harvested in California? Definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, what would happen if you took them away? It would be, it would certainly be a de- big decrease in, in you know, allotted harvest for sure. If, if the population, the naturally reproducing population, would recover to hatchery levels or beyond um who who knows i don't um Uh, how often is the um the the harvest number the quota um man that's tweaked that's what i was gonna say from year to year is it a year to year thing as a childhood i i remember there being an ability to catch three salmon for per person what is it now if you wanted to and then just a year ago it was two and and now this year it's it's one yep you can only keep keep one salmon so a lot of the guides probably run half two half days and so they're pulling two per per I'm boat. Sure, I'm sure per that's day, happening. But if, per you, person per if day. you catch no. a salmon, that and, would be the better way to do it. I would. I, my fear on the, a boat, is a boat that limit, they catch a, ten and keep one, which is probably not the ideal thing to do either. Better be, hmm. better be catch one, stop, take a new client, catch one, stop. Probably yeah. be better for the fish, right? Overall. And. and that's it's right in the regs. You can you catch your salmon, you're done. Can't even fish. Can't even have a basically a rod in your hand. So okay, it's kind of a new thing this year. You've seen a lot of people just sitting there in the boat. But you can do two half days though, where yeah. you unload one one yeah. group of people and bring in another group of five, and you get five more fish on the boat. So there's no per boat regs for the day. It's really just per person still. You think that would ever become a possibility to control the bag limit and try to remove the hatch not remove hatcheries entirely but slowly move away from them and try to re like and just use a, a stream or a river like the sack as an example to try to has that already been done or have they but, by you mean by reducing harvest re- do you try to right. increase escapement basically or the number of reproducing fish yep um i mean that's the that's the thought behind it right it's uh and a, a harvest allotment or bad bag limit is always imposed for for conservation purposes. If the forecast of fish is you know fairly limited, mm-hmm. um, they reduce the bag limit to yeah try to mm-hmm. make sure that there's a, a certain number of spawners um, that can that can start the next generation. Is it safe to say that the prime spawning habitat in the valley here is below the dam, even before the dams? Or was it further up? 
Does that make sense? It does make sense. Okay. I would I would venture to say that it was much further up. Okay. Um, so I guess it, like if you're going to get rid of the hatcheries, then like you have to have a better um, fish passage management or infrastructure to yeah. get past the you know but then the offset. In, in, in all reality, it's and, not just it's not just a dam that you very very high and large dam that you have to get across, right? Like yeah. you know, think Orville or Shasta. Um, but then you end up in a reservoir, um, and where do you go from there? And then if you do find a, if they do find a river and spawn successfully, how are the little ones going to get downstream? Like it's, it's nearly an insurmountable problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, If you're talking North Fork, it's just a shit show up there. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, even, even middle fork, you know, say you had salmon in the middle fork and they, they arrive in Lake Orville and at the dam, how are they going to get down? How do you with a, a little launcher on the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> you think they'd like that? Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. So fish passage over large dams, you know, it's a, it's a huge issue. It's, it's being considered in some places. Um, and I think it'd be valuable to, to have someone try to do it in some of these places that have very large dams and large reservoirs, um, as a learning experience. Um, yeah, as things currently stand, I don't necessarily have have high hopes mm-hmm. for for that approach as as being the most effective. What about saving a save the wetlands, eat a swamp rat? What? <laughs> <laughs> You're referring to nutria? Nutria, nutria. Yeah, I know I'm jumping all around, but this is all good stuff on Fish Files <clears throat> website, guys. Check check it out. There's a lot of cool articles. In there, yeah, I'm not too familiar with Nutria myself. Nutria, but that's it's what big. That's, that's what Henry's been. Henry that's Mello's what Henry was telling me about. Yeah, yeah, they're trapping the hell out it's of. It's going to be things. a big problem if those things get get loose. Apparently, um, and I think I didn't write that that particular piece on our website, but uh, I do remember um, reading somewhere that those the Nutria were here in the 70s or the 80s i believe and we somehow successfully eradicated them which they, is they like made, they that's made a pretty those protein rare... bars out of them yeah <laughs> they were first put into like la uh, los angeles lake like in back way back in the day okay. and then they killed they they stopped for fur right and trading and then they stopped doing that in like 1930 and then they were reintroduced between like all the different like watch somehow released and it didn't really specify how but it was from between washington oregon down through california they they look like a beaver but with a rat tail right that's exactly right yeah yeah it, henry henry had so so i was in the I was in the car for Henry with Henry Lamelli for a total of 24 hours because we drove down for this tuna trip. We drove from Chico down to San Diego and then back up after the trip was done. He told me a number of stories, but he told me like the uh, the beaver, the river otters, like they attack people and they've had like yep. m- multiple attacks where so I don't like like it. a dude's had his face <laughs> basically torn apart, ear tore off by an otter. Oh yeah, he said they're super aggressive. Oh, so they're young, I think. Yep. If you're yeah. by their, if you're by their, their, their spot. Um, but if you're if you're in the water swimming around, that's when you're really liable to to like get nailed by them. Yeah. Oh, okay. But when I was on, I was on Butt Reservoir one time in Elmenor, and I didn't know it, but I'd I'd like rode right past one of their dens, and two of them, man, came out like 
like those uh, those two weasels on Beastmaster. Do you guys remember that movie back in the day? <laughs> no? I don't know. I know that there's people Ferrets. listening. Yeah, the ferrets. You have. Okay, so you've seen Beastmaster. So those ferrets, man, they I came out like movie. those I two ferrets, movie. those pair of ferrets coming at me. And, dude, I, like, filled my waiters up. I was like, what the hell? They're coming at me. They're, like, waking at me, and it was they're making noises, and I just got the hell out. I've always wanted then, a ferret because of that it'd movie. It'd be cool. Yeah, everybody did. <laughs> Beastmaster was great. That movie was awesome. What would the otters have to do with the nutria? They look there's they oh, look similar. I thought you were gonna you say know, something just about how my what, mind works. What, I, I, no, there's absolutely no I don't have anything that loops back to any kind of logical <laughs> conclusion there. It's just kind of yeah, going good, off on one of my many to, tangents. A good place to go see otters if you're if you ever want to see play. like S E E or S E A. No, S E E if okay, you want to no, watch and observe them. Um a good place to go is Clear Creek up in Red Bluff. Hmm. Anderson. Red Bluff. A lot of them in there up there. Yeah, so if you if you walk the Clear Creek, kind of from the there's a viewing platform like the observatory. Platform, yeah, 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 yeah. For if you just go down to the river and walk downstream, there's a few dens down there. Where they're you can, pretty you know, cool, and they're they, super cool. They, they, I mean, it's not going to be a fish population there in a couple of years. They they're they're just like their economy of movement in the water is just something to really it's appreciate. It's pretty it's cool. Impressive. I'm wondering if they're eat, so they're eating these nutria. I'm wondering how an, now an otter. Taste, but they say the nutrient are like lean, <laughs> like chicken, no fat. <laughs> Everything tastes like chicken. I said they made bars out of them, energy yeah, bars. Eating, an, eating one like a river rat. You can you get know? them at Trader Joe's. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you if you get me one, I'll try it. The Nutria bar. <laughs> That's the whole thing. People would buy those. You have like a fur. You actually pack it in a fur package. You you know it's like totally sustainable. Yeah, with, uh, the males able to reproduce or something seven months or something like that. They can and they oh, the female can have up to I think two hundred in a lifetime or something. Brazilian kids, yeah, it's so, crazy. They're crazy. So and I was looking at some photos, you know, comparing the like an estuary or delta area, you know, back to now and and it was devastated. It looked like a poison was let loose and it killed all the vegetation. But they were bl- blaming it on the nutrient. I, I didn't. I had no idea that they were that bad. I'm saying, man. <laughs> ecosystem engineers in their own way anybody listening mm-hmm. wants to start a nutria bar company give me a call <laughs> <No>? <laughs> sorry to get off topic guys i didn't that was just some another cool article you guys had in on the fishbio.com hey to get back to an earlier topic there's a couple things I, I wanted to mention yeah um we talked about big chico creek earlier so for those those that are actually interested i mentioned we did that survey in 2013 um for the first time and then we came up with a, a total population estimate of about 2,500 trout. Um, Is that per mile? Trout. That was for the reserve. For the reserve. Per, within okay. the boundaries of the reserve. Um, so that was, that was 2013 when in, in general, you know, in other places in the Central Valley, trout populations were doing pretty well. And then it kind of, times got, times got a little harsher um, during the drought. And we saw a big drop in populations in other streams that we monitor in the mainly the, the tributaries to the San Joaquin. And I'm assuming Big Chico Creek didn't fare much better than, than those streams. Right. Um, unfortunately, we don't, we don't have the estimates for Big Chico Creek during that time. We do have it for this year, though. And we're looking at just about 1,900 is the estimate. So my, my thought and interpretation is that after 2013, 2014, there was probably a pretty 
big dip in the population and it's now on the upward swing um, again. Uh, we've seen, we are just recently, I saw similar recovery on, on other streams as well, that kind of big, big winner, um, not the previous one, but the one before. Um, seem to seem to do the fish a lot of good and that's interesting yeah pushing, that's, good to, that's good to hear too. pushing about two thousand fish on the on the reserve you see the water got low the otters got in there and they fuck screwed them <laughs> ate them sorry uh, fuck. <laughs> Dude, we need that where's that, where's that right now? where's that cuss jar but it, but it's, it's neat that these streams can bounce back like that, right? I mean, it, they're, they got, away. they're very resilient they critters. Got, you give them half a chance and they'll make it. They got hit hard. I mean, that drought, it, you could see just the temperature in the lower streams, you know, in the last few years, it just, the vegetation, right? I mean, it was just all, everything just looked bad. But a couple of good rain seasons, I think it'll be, it'll be good. We just need to get some salmon up into those tributaries, right? I think that's a huge, helps out a lot with, those fish in size numbers you know it's just a big biomass bring some some nutrient input yep. to those streams yeah yep. nutria <laughs> <laughs> nutria nutrients uh those aren't those aren't in this area right the nutria, nutria? Where, I, they're not, so. yeah i've don't seen muskrats so. but i haven't seen a nutria <laughs> not that i i don't think i'd be able to id a nutria in a lineup but i think they're farther down the central valley farther south right now there's Let's more hopefully keep it that way there's more beavers around than i ever thought there would be yeah is there the, just the past the past few times can you we still trap them in the sack i i wouldn't know but i yeah it seems like there's a lot of beavers just every few hundred yards you, like the, you, you see a beaver you need, need to look into that that'd be good to talk about i know there's there was a trapping program the federal government put together i don't know if it's still i have no idea huh, what about brown trout uh counts and very few very few. few. We, you did I see a few, though. We saw Which, a few small ones. Little we dudes. did not see any large <clears throat> ones. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they're not there. Right. You know, they could have just been in the Hiding from 80% you. of pools that we didn't snorkel. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but in, in all the ones that we did snorkel, we didn't see any large ones. We saw a handful of small fish. And you guys looked in big pools? We did look in big pools. We Every fifth one, we we snorkeled the entirety of it. And a few of them we did four times. And yeah, no no large browns. With the low water and high temperatures, you would think that they, those would be the ones that, right? That would be able to stick. Yeah. But... It's yeah, interesting. I I'm not sure. Not sure what happened. Kind of inter interesting and and related to that. Um, about a week or so ago, I went to Big Chico Creek upstream, like where where the Highway 32 crosses it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Matt and I had gone there a few years back, and you pretty much catch exclusively little brown trout. Really. Um, and this year, I didn't see a single one. Really. I caught mm -hmm. plenty of rainbows. You know, nothing. Nothing big. Six inch fish, round and chunky, but not a single brown. Interesting. Mm. Um, I've, so, snorkel, I've snorkeled up there and saw a good mix, like 50 okay. 50. That was a couple I mean, of years maybe ago I now, just didn't but. catch the browns. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. tough to tell, but right. I was surprised to not see any. It's mm. small up there, too. It's, it's, I mean, it's arm's, skinny, arm's skinny, length, skinny. really, yep. as far as width of the stream. It's very yep. tiny, tiny up there. If you got a Tenkara route, it's a good place to go. That's a good yeah. call. Yeah. Every place you think there, there could be a fish, there usually is one up there. It's pretty impressive. You, small. You guys have any fishing adventures on the on the calendar? Going anywhere? Coming up here soon? Or I want to catch a steelhead. So, but you guys were talking about steelhead. I want to go <laughs> being a short window of the year. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> nothing, I can't, nothing on I the can't calendar. Wait till they, they come floated in. the pit, right? 
We did float the pit. We did float the yeah. pit. That's right. Early June, pretty ballsy. Um, we took the we did the easy portion of uh, pit section three um, because Michael and I at least were the rookie ro- or rookie paddlers. Yeah, on the trip, so there wasn't anything too too bad or no. gnarly. Um, oh, that's cool. Like hit a couple rocks here and there, but that's about it. Any rattlesnakes? Nope, no rattlesnakes. That's surprising. Did you guys catch a yep. lot of fish? We did. People always say there's nice. a lot of rattlesnakes on it. I've never seen one on the pit. Really? I'm sure they're there. I've never seen one. Every time I've been, I've seen one. That's funny. Um, every time I've been to Five Mile, I've seen one. It's kind of funny. And sometimes, yeah, other people go there all the time. I'm like, oh, I never didn't know there was rattlesnakes there. Yeah. It's, yeah, the hit and miss with those things. Um, did we catch a lot of fish? I think we got a decent amount of fish. I don't think the floating it or kayaking it was necessarily more successful than wading it. Yeah, but you get kind of lost feel, when you do that. You, you you're, not in, you're not really fishing. You're more trying to just get to survive. Get survive. You, could yeah. take, uh, you could take less ibuprofen at the end of the day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Much fewer bruises. You're yes. less beat up at the end of the day. That's for sure. I think that that's why I actually prefer walking wide versus boat fishing because it's boat fishing. There's a level. There's another level of anxiety there because you got to manage the boat. And you know, I haven't ever captained a boat, but I'm assuming it's. There's just a lot more to process other than just being in the moment and fish, you know? Yeah. It's easier to get different places, especially on yeah. the pit, right? Yeah. You don't have to do the, the slippery, tough wading. So you guys didn't ever fish out of the boat. You'd go to some spot, secure the boat, and then fish. And then hop out yeah. and fish. Yeah. 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 I tried I tried fishing, like drift fishing out of the kayak with a fly rod. That was a little challenging. But I did <laughs> stick a fish or two. You did <laughs> You're like now what? But no, I was, I, gotta, I, was, oh, yeah, I, was I was, I was spinning, I was spinning in a circle uh, through a pool, and then had to get the fish off before we kind of went through a little oh, riffle. That, and that just pool. doesn't so sound like, like a relaxing time. It's pretty. I mean, it's fun. it's exciting. It's, it's not exciting. relaxing, but it's yeah. exciting. Yeah, well, that's cool. Anything else? Yeah, I'm just I'm thinking about steelhead still, man. The skein is on fire right now. It's on fire. Oh, nice. British Columbia is on fire. They're saying they're having like a hundred year fish run. Wow. Right now. That's cool. I'd love to get up there. I know. Right. I'm going to go. It's happening right now. I'm going to go down to, um, where is it? Somewhere it's San Clemente and Catalina salty fly guy. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn Potomar catch some in about a month, I guess like October 1st. I'm going some Bonita and some yellowtail. Yeah. Not keep release. I don't think I'll ever do another catch and catch and kill trip again. I just we're gonna talk about Too it. Too much carnage, episode. dude. It was brutal. <laughs> it's, it's meat fishing, you know. There's uh, it's, it's like being it's the, harvesting. It, it was basically like being at a butcher, honestly. Um, I don't know. Just didn't like it. Yeah, no. I've, I'm I'm hoping for for a few trips over to the coast or coastal trips um, at some point this fall. And you guys kind of inspired me a little bit with bringing up the cutthroat. Um, I'll be over on the coast for a few days here at some point next month. Yeah. Um, taking a taking a few friends um, on a tour that are yeah. I want to try an estuary or lagoon, and I might I might try to stick a cutthroat next year. Go do a little cut, yeah. Fish for some cutties. I think that what I really want to do in the estuaries and, and that is salmon on a fly rod. Mm. Salmon, really, steelhead too. Yeah, and yeah. steelhead. Yeah, totally yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah pretty absolutely. Yeah. But you can. I mean, October, right? November, when those rains start to come, that's when the yep. the salmon start. I spent a lot of time on, on Stillwater this year, and Watch, I can apply the those skills that I learned to that. It sounds like, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of sight fishing opportunities. 
Pretty, pretty intense when when you see a big wake chasing your fly. Did you do any of that when you're in Humboldt? A area? little bit, a little bit here and there. Yeah, yep. Pretty close to Arcana. Right. Yep. Cool. Well, do you want to put this baby to bed? Sure. So websites. Hey, you know what? What's I, the f- one one more thing? I don't know if you want to or can weave it in in your in your edits or your processing after. Um, but one of the things I meant to mention earlier is. You know, I know we don't mention a lot of specific rivers and spots and stuff right. like that on the show, and we good. don't want to. There we go. Um, but I think a very underutilized resource, and I kind of learned this at you know during my time at Humboldt, is as a as an angler to to dig around a little bit in the scientific literature. You know, do some Google Scholar searches on that's, like cutthroat trout. That's how I found found out where to find High Lake. Um, brookies in in California. Exactly, and then you know you'll you'll learn things about. Oh yeah, you find a paper seasonal habitat use of coastal cutthroat trout. Hmm. Oh yeah, you know they're spread out during the winter. You don't even have to look anywhere but pools during the summer. Oftentimes they'll mention specific streams and what the run sizes were that year and what time of year you see them and what they eat and all sorts of things. And, Dude, you know, don't okay, don't stop. <laughs> Don't just rely yeah. on the the fly fishing <laughs> blogs and podcasts. But Look make sure you yourself. but make that's, sure you check the regs after you find that data, right? Yeah, certainly do. Yeah, always do. Always <laughs> that's do. I mean, there's so much there's so much research out there. And then another tip, if we're going to talk about Google search, we we could do a whole podcast on just research and places to go find stuff. But um, look for like files that end in type PDF. Because most of these research documents are in PDF format when they're they're posted. So you online. just throw that in. So that just narrows t- it down. You just throw that yeah, in the search the f- search parameter. You go to the advanced search options. You can look at it there, or if you you know how to do the query all at once, you can you know write the query. But um, advanced search has a file type option at the bottom of the the screen on Google, the Google. The bias Google. The problem with California is that those rivers that, <laughs> that's a whole that's other podcast. Yeah, They're going to send you wrong. to all the yeah. liberal rivers. Yeah. Well, no, in all California, the the, the ocean. all the places that they're talking about in these documents are closed to fishing. You can't fish them. <laughs> but if you go up in Oregon or Washington, I'm sure you yeah. can get away with a little bit more, some sneaky spots. Oh, there's plenty of sneaky spots. Is there in sneaky California? spots in Cali? Oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> start re- start right. researching. Okay. So, websites fishbio.com right that is correct you guys are on facebook is it is it slash fishbio i have to admit i don't know uh well we'll put that in the show notes and then you guys so you guys do a blog and a fish report is that the same thing no no it's not uh on mondays we do a fish report and it's typically like a little bit more in depth um kind of well researched you know page long read yeah and then um on wednesdays and fridays we do a shorter piece um just you know more observations from the field or our shop or stuff we're doing. And then uh, usually Friday, I think we try to take it easy these days and just do something simple. So you yeah, find um, all those in the same place though. Fish bio. The mailer, the right. fish bio mailer that we're both on. Um, I, I would recommend you guys who's listening, um, subscribe to that is very good. It's, it's geeky. If you're a fish geek, like we are, um, you probably would benefit from listening, uh, reading that um, Instagram, Fish Biology at Fish Biology. Um, our website is, we're going to actually relaunch our website here pretty soon, guys, and there'll be a bunch of new stuff. Nick and I just uh, got some shirts today ordered, hats ordered. Uh, we've had several people ask about apparel. It's coming. Please be patient. 
what else? Always rate us on uh, Google Play and the uh, App Store. What else? And tell Alexa how much you like us. Alexa, yeah. We, we're getting an Alexa skill at some point. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure. All right. Peace. Wait. Oh, we're still not going to – we're still rolling. Can you guys talk about the um, – that fish ladder that was recently built. Oh, this is like Marvel at the end of the Marvel movie. You think the credits are rolling and then bam. Not it's like the, it was not an actual ladder, but it was, a, it was an actual content. cage that was lowering the um Reese. It's uh, uh the it oh. was a fan for red camera, yes. I believe. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know a ton about it. Um I was pretty impressed like just a full disclosure during our Monday meeting staff calls, I was like, heard about this elevator. Oh, the elevator. There's like a lot of people working on the elevator. Like, what is this what elevator the heck are we thing? talking about elevators? Like, what is and this elevator? Bio? And like, this should be simple, right? Just, you know, put it in the water. Um, no, when I saw the, <laughs> when I saw the pictures, the elevator structure is essentially like a, uh, it's like a, a two trap. story, two story high scaffolding structure, essentially with a, with an elevator in it that lowers our monitoring equipment down into a, um, basically a, a causeway structure. So it's like, like a, a watertight cage that, that goes down into the, uh, the equipment, the, the equipment ca- is the housing. A, yeah. That, that's in a housing. And, and there's a red camera in it. Infrared. Infrared. Oh, infrared. Yeah. I was like a red cam. Okay. Got yeah, it. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I, saw, yeah, I saw a picture. Of I it. saw the pictures and I was yeah. like, okay, I know, I know why that thing took so long to build. Yeah, it looks <laughs> like, they designed it for the water to flow through it a specific way, and I mean, yeah, all- and, and and it had to be it had to be engineered in such a way to um, fit exactly down into some slots in mm-hmm. the um, in the causeway structure and the um, in the in the passage structure. So, and we couldn't. Uh, one of the other challenges, I believe, on that one was that we couldn't attach the structure to itself, so it had to basically sit in place and get locked in by these little slots in the, mm. in the concrete walls. So, yeah, just another thing our shop builds, and yeah, it's pretty impressive. Your elves, <laughs> they're more like <laughs> our magicians. Shop guys, yeah, magicians, pretty much. Yeah, they can yeah, build, they do some build, pretty cool stuff. Build anything and everything for us. Very cool. Yeah, go check them out. Fishbio.com. Okay, now we're done. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fishbio and Amped Up Build. Fishbio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, Fishbio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.